Good morning. It is a great day. It is awesome to be with you guys and to see all of you here today. So thank you for signing up and coming at 9 o'clock. And we know uh, we've got a big audience out there virtually, and so we're grateful that you are joining us for worship as well. I just want to say, by the way, so 9 o'clock has been pre-registered and sold out. You don't buy a ticket, but you do pre-register, okay, week after week. And so on October 11, we're going to add back in the 11 uh, because we are so limited in our ability to accommodate whoever wants to come in person for worship that we figured, hey, well, let's use as much space as we can. And, uh, and so if you rather come at 11 or if you've been sort of locked out, as one person I talked to today said, man, I just I haven't been able to get registered fast enough, um, there'll be more opportunity for that on October 11. So really looking forward to that. And I know that, you know, a bunch of people have started to join us online who have never actually physically been to this church. And I'm hoping that at some point you'll come and, you know, like you'll get to the place where you go, all right, these people are strange, but... They're not so weird that I wouldn't mind meeting them and and maybe introducing myself and bumping elbows, and that would be a great encouragement. I I think to everybody, it certainly would be to me. So so I hope that you do that. We are turning to the word of the Lord today, and we're going to return to a study in which, as Will said, here's what we're doing. We're looking at the infinite greatness of Jesus, but we're not going to the New Testament to do it, which is weird. It's kind of odd. It's like, well, if you're going to look at the greatness of Jesus, shouldn't we read the Jesus part of the Bible? But part of the message of the whole study is, no, 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 the whole Bible is the Jesus part of the Bible. Like the whole book is ultimately about him. And that's what, what that frees us to do, is to look at his greatness through some of the other really great characters of the Bible who we stand in awe of rightly, but who, when we compare them to him, make us stand more rightly in awe of him. And we come today to actually... One of my favorites, but we don't even know her name. It's weird. And it's particularly weird when you consider how favored she really is by the Lord. I mean, God comes to this woman and he appears to her, not on a pillar of fire, not on a cloud, not on a burning bush, but as a person, if you will. He comes in the person of the angel of the Lord as somebody that you can see and that has a physical body, if you will, that looks like yours, that you can relate to in that particular way. He comes to this woman as the angel of the Lord, God himself in the angel of the Lord, not once but twice. Who else in the Bible does God do that for? Just start running through it. I mean, I guess if you go all the way back to Adam, you could say, well, the Lord, it says, walked in the cool of the day with Adam. I mean, that sort of implies a physicality. So then probably that was the case for Adam. All right, well, Adam is, you know, kind of a big deal. I mean, Adam's sort of a significant character. You think of Abraham. God certainly spoke to Abraham on several occasions. On one occasion, he shows up in person in the angel of the Lord. Think of Joshua commander of the Lord's army. You think of Jacob, God wrestled with him all night, one time, one time, a lot of ones. What about Moses? He certainly spent a lot of time in the presence of the Lord. And I don't know what that looked like in all of those particular moments, but just think of those names for a second. I mean, you've got Adam, you have Abraham, you have Joshua, you have Jacob, you have Moses and you have, yeah, we don't know her name. Don't know. And more than that, he shows up in this woman's life and he says, hey, I'm going to do something for you. It's going to be really significant. You're going to love this because it's what you've been wanting me to do all your life. I am going to cure your barrenness. You are going to miraculously conceive and you're going to have a son. And, uh, and what does that then do? That puts her in the category. I mean, if you're just thinking about the characters of the Bible, of Sarah, of Rebecca, of Rachel, of the wives and mothers of the patriarchs of Israel, if you go beyond this woman's life, then you have Hannah, the mother of Samson, or I mean, the mother of Samuel. You have Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus. And you're like, Mary wasn't barren. No, she was not. But she was a virgin. 
So explain that. That is the ultimate supernatural conception, and it speaks, by the way, to God's kindness to us. We get to the New Testament, and what does God do? He's like, you know what? A pillar of fire is not enough. A cloud is not enough. A burning bush is not enough. An angel of the Lord with some kind of an appearance of humanity is not enough. Here's what I'm going to do. I, the invisible, intangible, incomprehensible God, am going through a supernatural conception in the womb of a virgin, so nobody's wondering about the fatherhood of this. I am going to take upon myself an actual human body. I am going to be the God-made man. And I'm not just going to pop in and out. I'm going to live 33 years. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to experience humanity in all of its fullness. And yet I will not fail or sin. And at the end of it, here's what I will be enabled to do. I and the person of Jesus Christ will be enabled as a man for mankind with a life of infinite value because I am also God. And because I am perfect, I will be enabled to lay down my perfect life in the place of every imperfect person who goes, hey, you know what, I'm imperfect and I need a substitute. But just think about this woman, Adam, Abraham, Joshua, Jacob, Moses, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth, Mary. What's the difference between her and all of those people? We know all of their names. We don't know her name. And what struck me this week is that she doesn't seem to care. And the reason that struck me this week is because I care. And I don't care so much about her name. I am curious. I'm not going to lie. But But really, like, I care about my name, and you care about your name. Sorry, but you do. Like, we all care desperately about our names. This woman has been disabused of all of that and all the entanglements of it. We care about our name. We want to be noticed. We want to be recognized. We want to be celebrated. We want that moment in which everybody goes, wow, you did something that mattered in your life. And why? Because as you peel back the onion of our heart deep down in the middle of it is this need to do something that matters with our life. Like we want to get to the end of our life and go, well, you know, there was a lot of missed opportunity. There's some regret and all of it. There was that 90 seconds of standing ovation. There was that event and I got a plaque and where is that plaque? What did I do with that thing? Or maybe it's hanging proudly on a wall. But when you're gone, where will it go? It'll go into the hands of your kids and they'll go, what do I do with this thing? You know, like, I mean, I feel bad throwing it away. So is this a, is this like a box in the attic kind of a thing? Is that where this goes? (laughs) Because this was very valuable to my dad or mom or, you know, like, so then it goes in a box and it goes in their attic and then they die and where does it go? It goes into the hands of your grandkids. You don't even know what happened. Like, what is this? I know this is my grandfather or my grandmother or whatever. Do we just pass this thing on? We want to do something that matters. We want to be known for having mattered. That's the drive. There's value to my life. There was significance to something that I did to the person that I was. And so we care about our names. And and what do we do? We achieve, we accomplish, right? We acquire and we do. And we achieve, we accomplish, we acquire and we do. And we achieve, we accomplish, we acquire and we do. I'm getting tired. We achieve, we accomplish, we acquire, we do. I want to sit down. We achieve, we acquire, we accomplish and we do, right? We just, just want to, and like at some point, it's just this dizzying amount of activity and we can't stop because we don't know how much we need to achieve, accomplish, acquire or do to qualify as having mattered. 
and who decides. It's exhausting. And this woman's like, hey, listen, can I free you of that? I don't care a thing about my name. And here's why. Because if you're a Christian, you bear the name of Almighty God. His name is your name. And here's your mission in life. It's not to make your own name great. It is to reveal the objectively, transcendently great name of God. That's it. So as we look at this woman's life, or at least the first part of her story, uh, here's the question that I want you to ask yourself. And just kind of wrestle through it, okay? It's unmasking because it tells you whose name you're living for. It really does. Are you going to be okay if at the end of your life you never made the papers? Like you weren't celebrated, you weren't recognized, you didn't get a plaque, like no 90 seconds of ovation, like nobody went, wow, you did something that mattered. Would you be okay with that if at the same time you die knowing that through you God's name made the papers? I mean, at least with the people in your family or the people that you work with or the people in your neighborhood or some group of people that you join together with a group of people to make God's name greater, really, to reveal the greatness of God's name too. Like, Lord, I don't care if I make the papers. My name doesn't matter. And I'm good. As long as I know you made the papers. Because that's why I'm here. I'm here to see that happen. Will you be okay if you don't make the papers at all? As long as through you, he does. We find this woman's story in Judges 13, beginning in verse 1. And it begins with this, and it's a familiar refrain in the book of Judges. It says that the people of Israel, again, that's the key word, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Why is that the key word? Because it's part of a pattern and a cycle that you see all the way through the book of Judges that runs something like this. The people of Israel do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. That is to say, they abandon the Lord their God and they run off after other gods. They begin to say, you know what, Lord, I'm not interested in your name. I'm interested in my name. And here's what I know about you. (laughs) You're interested in your name and you want to conscript me into your plan to reveal the greatness of your name when in fact, I'm looking for a God that will join me in my plan to make my name great. And that's not you, so I'm going to set you aside. I'm going after my name. I've got other gods, and here's the deal. I'm going to run off in this direction. And then what does God do every time in this pattern? He says, okay, you're going to do that? All right, I'm going to turn you over to your enemies, and it's going to be super uncomfortable for you because he wants to punish them, because he's upset, he's kind of ticked, he's a little resentful. None of that. Because he loves them. He's saying, no, 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 I'm going to introduce massive discomfort, and that's putting it mildly, into your life because I want to wake you up. Make your own name? Yeah, that's miserable. So I'm going to let you experience where that goes because I want you to wake up spiritually. I've been thinking about that in light of the pandemic, and I don't know that I'm onto it yet. Like, I'm not sure that I've figured it out. Like, I can't say the Lord showed up to me and the angel of the Lord, and then this is what he said to me, and here's a word from God for you. But just some of the things I think about is it's not like the land of Goshen. You know, it's not like the plagues of Egypt. It's not like God has come and said, I'm going to bring a big plague on the world, but I'm going to draw a circle around my people, and they're not going to suffer. He said, no, 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 I'm going to bring a plague upon the world and my people are going to suffer along with the world. And things are going to happen like, hopefully, they'll look different from everybody else. And in that, people will go, well, wait a minute, why do you look different than I do? Because, I mean, you've got it at least as bad as I do. Maybe you even have it worse than I do. And yet, nevertheless, you have joy. Yet, nevertheless, you have peace. Yet, nevertheless, you have whatever. Name gets made great. 
I think maybe that's part of it. I think maybe part of it too is God is just coming and he's just doing a work in his church. I think this pandemic is more about us than it is about anybody else. I think God is stripping us down to the studs and remaking us. I think we've been praying for revival, not just us. People all over the world have been praying for revival. What is that? It's a special season of divine visitation in which the Spirit awakens his slumbering, we are at sleep church. Sorry, that's what we've all of us all over the world, or at least in our part of the world, have been for decades, and all the statistics prove it. One-third of Christians, and I put that in quotes, who were attending church before the pandemic have completely dropped out. A third of the American church has disappeared. It's fascinating to me and a little discouraging, but also kind of encouraging. I think God is coming and he is doing a work in us. Where does revival begin? It begins in repentance. It begins in you and I going, hey, you know what? It isn't about my name, God. It's about your name. And hey, you know what? I haven't done a great name. I haven't done a great job with your name because I've been all about mine. It begins with an awakening to what really matters. It's what we see in the book of Judges. We see it again, and then we see it again, and then we see it again, and then we see it again. They walk away from the Lord. The Lord turns them over to their enemies. After a period of time, they go, oh, good grief, this isn't working, and we're miserable. But we have a God. They awaken spiritually. They cry out to him for relief. He raises up a judge to deliver them. And then as long as the judge is alive, they remain true to God until the judge dies. And then what happens? The cycle repeats. And that is the the cycle precisely all the way through this book until you get to this story. You start working through the cycle and checking the boxes, and there's one missing. And the box that's missing is the, is the box of repentance. So, so they fall away from the Lord. He says, all right, Philistines for 40 years for you. That's no fun, 40 years. Like, you know, we're like what, like seven months? You know, like 40 years. And they're still trying to make his name for themselves. And the question is, okay, now what? Like, what is God going to do? Because we know the cycle. We've checked box one. We've checked box two. We're waiting on box three. And it doesn't come. And what does God do? He rescues them anyway. He comes to this woman. And through this woman, he brings a judge. And it's a judge who has not yet been born. A judge is conceived. A judge is given. That, too, is a different part of the puzzle. Again, it says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. All right, box one and two, check them both. No repentance, and yet God delivers his people anyway. It says there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren. So there she is, and had no children. And the angel of the Lord, who again is himself, appeared to Manoah. No, he does not appear to Manoah. He appears to the woman and he says to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. What is he saying? He's coming to her and he's going, Hey, I'm going to do for you what I did for Sarah, what I did for Rebecca, what I did for Rachel, what I will do for Hannah, what I'll do for Elizabeth, what I'll do for Mary in an even more amazing, incredible kind of way. Except I've recorded all their names in my book. Or I will, and I'm not going to do that for you. Are you okay with that? She's like, I'm way okay with that. Why am I okay with that? Well, because, God, there's probably a thousand reasons I could give for, I don't care about my name, but I care about yours. But let's just use the one you just gave me. So my womb is dead. If I have proven anything, it's that. And what you've just told me is that you are going to bring life 
out of my dead womb, which means that you are a God who brings life out of death, and not just out of physical death, but out of all kinds of death. Redemption comes through failure. Redemption comes through death of all kinds. There is hope, there is joy, there is all of these things, but only by the power of God. His power is a resurrection power. That's the power that lives in us by the power of the Spirit. It's the power that raised Christ from the dead. She's like, okay, so here's the deal. Death and marriage, I I, I can't bring life out of that. Death and relationship with my kids or parents, I can't bring life out of that. Death physically, like literally, I can't bring life out of that. If I know anything about me as a human and us as a race, we cannot bring life out of death. But you just told me that you can. So I'm thinking that between my name and yours, I mean, if I got to choose which one is going to be known, it's a pretty simple choice. And the Lord says to her, all right, well, good answer. So let me tell you how to raise this child. This child is going to be a Nazarite to me from conception, which is when life begins. From conception, like you're going to have to participate in the Nazarite vow until he's born. And then after that, you're going to have to help him participate. And then after that, he's going to have to take it up and participate. And you're like, what does all that mean? It means that this child is a specially dedicated child who grows into a specially dedicated man who does a lot of failing, by the way. But nevertheless, unto the Lord, he's separated unto God from birth. And he, God says, will save, no, will begin to save the people of Israel, which implies that he's going to die in the effort. Why do I say that? Well, because it's, you know, he's not just going to quit. Ah, I tried this. You know, these people are driving me crazy and I'm out, you know, like I'm done. I'm just, I got a villa on the Mediterranean. I'm just going to go relax. And it's not an option. So if he's just beginning, he must have died in the effort. Which means that this Samson, whose miraculous conception is foretold by an angel to his mother, who's being conceived to enter into the world as a specially chosen person to deliver God's people, will die in the effort. It's a part of the deal. If you know the story, what position physically, literally, is he in when he dies? Because they put him between two pillars, and then he does like this. Looks familiar, doesn't it? How does that happen? How do these stories get recorded in such a way as to speak of Christ? If this is not a supernatural book, then none of it makes sense. So what does this woman do? This nameless, amazing person, first of all, believes the word of the Lord. She doesn't go, this is crazy. Absolute madness. And she runs off to tell her husband, Manoah, who does not believe her. And let's just, you know, I mean, let's cut him a little slack, all right? This is a very unusual story. This would be kind of an unusual event. And, you know, so, but what he does is he says, all right, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to send the same person who came to see you to me so that, you know, I can interact with this person too, because this is seeming a little weird to me. And so he prays, Lord, send this man back to me. And the Lord comes back, but not to him. He comes back to the woman, and what does she do? Because you know what she did. She went, oh, don't you move. (laughs) You stay right there. If I get back with him and you're not here, he's going to be saying things like, is he here now? Do you see him, honey? You know, (laughs) Have you totally lost your mind? Is the man here? Please stay here. Runs off, gets him, comes back. Manoah has no idea who this person is. 
He's clearly inferior to her in a lot of ways. His sensibilities are are off. And so he says to the Lord, are you the man who spoke to this woman, my nameless wife? And what does God say? Because it's an unusual answer. Like, I mean, if I said to you, hey, are you the guy that spoke to my wife? You know, you'd go, yes. You know, like, I am. I hope that was okay. You know, it wasn't awkward. Everything was fine. You know, you know what I mean? Like, hey, did you talk to so-and-so yesterday? Yes. Hey, did you, did you follow up with that? I did. Are you the... God says something different. He says, I am. You the man who spoke to this woman? I am. That's a significant statement. It's something that Manoah should have gone, what, 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 did, what did you say? <laughs> I, why? Because that's the memorial name of God to all generations. It's the name that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. God says to Moses, I want you to go into Egypt. I want you to deliver my people from slavery and oppression. 430 years under the thumb of the most powerful man in the world and among many other things, Moses says, look, when I get there and I say, I'm your deliverer, you know, God has sent me, they're going to say to me, what God is it who has the power to deliver us from the most powerful man in all the earth. And God says, that's exactly right. They're going to ask you that question. They're going to want to know my name. So here it is. It's I am. Which is kind of cool, right? Like, but probably in the moment, Moses is like, I am Sam. I am like, who are you? Like, what's the rest? What's the name? I am Bill. Like, who are you? Like, and God's like, no, no, no. When my people ask who is able to deliver them, from any of the powers of this world. That's my name. It's I am. It's remarkable. And Jesus, I see him here in this story too. Why do I say that? Because when you go to the New Testament, you find Jesus and he's going back into the Old Testament and he's gathering up the burning bush, I am memorial name of God to all generations. And that's my generation and yours as well. It's his name to you. And he's applying it to himself. He's like, well, if you're wondering who I am, I am the great I am. And then he attaches it to all these images of life. I am the bread of life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the light of the world. Hey, you know what? I'm the true vine. Like he gathers up all these things that in this culture, these people would have understood and it would have been significant. And he's like, I am that God. And here's what I am to you as that God. You need light, that's me. You need a shepherd, that's me. You know what the door does everywhere in the Bible? It stands between destruction and deliverance. He's like, yep, there I am. Life, I'm the bread of life. When you're dead, I'm the resurrection and the life. You need to know the truth. You need to know the way. You need to have the life. What about the vine? What does the vine produce? It produces grapes. What does the grapes produce? They produce wine. What does wine produce? And I know you want to say drunkenness, and it can when you use too much of it. But it's a biblical emblem of joy. And joy is the strength of God's people. Where is joy found? Because right now, not a lot of us are feeling it. And what does that do for God's name? Because what Jesus is saying is, is this found in me? <laughs> and I, I am him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again and again, what he's saying is, look, I'm taking stuff away from you until you realize 
that I am who and what you need. And in that, there is life. And in that, there is light. And in that, there is resurrection power. And in that, there is joy. And there is everything else as well. That's the idea. And so Manoah says, are you the man who spoke to you know, my wife? And God says, I am. And Manoah completely misses the hint. And so I, you know, I don't know if he's just feeling weird, but he says, well, I, you know, can I make you dinner? You know, Because we usually eat in about half an hour. I'm starting to get hungry, and it looks like you're going to stay. So do you want to stay for dinner? Because we're hospitality-oriented as a family. And God says, no, I don't want dinner. But, hint, hint, if you would like to offer a burnt offering as a sacrifice to the Lord, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't you do that? And Manoah says, all right, so I, I, I'm sorry, but this is, it's, I got, I just, I got to know who you are. Uh, what's your name? Verse 18. What does the Lord say? He says, why do you ask my name, seeing that it, what, might be? Seeing that it is, I don't know, occasionally thought to be? Seeing that some people in some moments when things are going well for them, which ironically might be the worst thing for them spiritually, but nevertheless think it is? Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is objectively, transcendently, undeniably, unquestionably, Wonderful. What is his name? Well, he has many. And one of them is wonderful. When I hear his name is wonderful, I think Isaiah the prophet. I immediately start shooting in my Bible, you know. I go to Isaiah 7, for example, and this is not going to be in the slides, but in Isaiah 7, for example, Isaiah, 750 years before the supernatural conception and birth of Jesus, says, and the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they shall call his name. It's all about the name, isn't it? Emmanuel, what does that mean? It means what that conception is and does. It means God with us. How? As a pillar of fire, as a cloud, as an angel? No, no, no. As one of us. It's amazing. And then in chapter 9, what does he say? He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his, here it is, name shall be called Wonderful, to which he then appends the word Counselor. And, you know, you hear that, oh, God, God's a wonderful counselor. That's fantastic, because if I'm honest, you know, you're thinking to yourself, maybe I could use some counseling. And the reason I could use some counseling is because my identity is not attached to who I am in God, his name, which represents all that he is. But my identity is attached to my net worth, and my net worth is decreasing, and so also is my self-worth. It's attached to my marriage, and that's struggling right now, so then I'm feeling diminished. It's attached to my kids and relationship with them, or to my parents and relationship, and that's also being diminished. Like everything's being diminished. It's like I'm being stripped of this and stripped of that and stripped of this and stripped of that, and I don't want to get out in bed in the morning if I'm going to be honest because I don't feel like there's anything to get out of bed worth getting out of bed to do. Truth. God's like, I'm just waiting for you to repent. 
I'm just waiting. How much is it going to take? Is it going to be 40 years? Like, what is it going to take for me and for you to humble ourselves and go, you know what, Lord, this isn't working. What I'm trusting in isn't working. What I've attached myself to subconsciously, okay, isn't working. Like, I didn't intend to go out and and attach myself to this, and now I'm a wreck. I mean, that's not the way I've set out to do things, but it's, it's actually now what's being revealed through the difficulties to me that I've done, And I need to attach myself to the one whose name is transcendent. The only one that matters in the end. His name is Wonderful Counselor. Do you know what that refers to? It refers to a military strategist. Isaiah is saying that God is in a battle, not against the world, but for it. He is wanting your heart. He's wanting your life. He's wanting this world. He has constructed a strategy. And Isaiah sees the strategy and he backs up and he's like, whoa, that's amazing. And it's guaranteed to win. And no mere human would come up with this. Do you know how we go to war against the arrogant? Forgive me, but it's by being more arrogant. Do you know how we go to war against people who do unjust things? It's by being more unjust. Do you know how we go against people who are unrighteous? By being more unrighteous. We go after the oppressors and we become more oppressors than the oppressed. The oppressors were that we're after. Not the Lord. He doesn't use conventional means. They don't work. We're witnessing it. They divide, not unite. The Lord does something different. He comes to us in the most vulnerable of ways, the most transparent of ways, the most human of ways. He enters into the world through the most human means, through a birth canal complete with amniotic fluid, an umbilical cord, and an elongated head. That's God, and then he woos us to himself, not by taking us by force, but by drawing us in the face of a child. He pulls us to himself through his beauty and through his love. My goodness, Isaiah says, let me give you the name of this Jesus. It's wonderful and counselor. But he continues, he says, and it's mighty God, and it speaks of a warrior king. Here's how we do battle today. Our military strategists, and I would do the same thing, no criticism for this, it's all through technology. So they sit in Tampa, for example, and then they conduct war on the other side of the world through technology and through people that they're able to you know, follow and, and take care of and, and, and shepherd in that particular way. Got it, understand it, affirm it, I'm with it. But that's not how they did it in those days. In those days, what he's imaging is a warrior king who goes out to battle before his people. In fact, in this case, Jesus is saying, you guys stay here. I'm going out onto the battlefield alone, and it's going to cost me my life on a cross, but by my life, I will defeat all of the enemies, and I will give you life. But it doesn't end there. His name shall be Everlasting Father. The kings of old were called the father of their people. And that's not a title that excites everybody because maybe you didn't have a great father. But I think the point is that in Christ you have the father that you always wished you had. Somebody who doesn't take advantage of you, who doesn't abuse you, who doesn't neglect you, who doesn't use you, who doesn't leave you. He's an everlasting father. He never dies. Then finally it says that his name shall be called Prince of Peace. Because that's what he brings. He brings peace with God. He dies to take away everything that stands between us and him. He brings peace of mind. He comes to us and says, wow, I know. I've introduced, I've introduced a lot of uncertainty into your life, which implies purpose. 
If there was any other circumstance for you that would actually, in my great wisdom, be better for you, I'd have you doing that. So obviously, whatever's happening is what's best. And you can have peace of mind knowing that he's at work in it, that he's with you in it. That somehow, usually way beyond the limits of our imagination, good is going to come from it. And he brings eternal peace. He's the eternal God. So Manoah says, you know, what is your name? And God says, why do you ask me my name, seeing that it is wonderful? And Manoah says, all right, we're going to offer the sacrifice because you'd rather have that than dinner. And so that's what they do. And in verse 20, it says, when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord entered into the sacrifice. He entered into the sacrifice. Just try to imagine that. And he went up in the flame of the altar. And it says, now Manoah and his wife were watching all of this. When they saw what happened, they fell on their faces to the ground. And they said, oh my goodness, we need to have a son. Which they did. And they called him Samson. And look, Samson is a great name. For all of his flaws, when you get to the New Testament, you find him in Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of all these Old Testament characters who did great things. The New Testament is very charitable with people. Samson is a great name. Well, let's put him down here, shall we? It's nothing compared to the name of Jesus. Jesus is the great I am with all of the life titles applied and then some. You know, Jesus... Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, Almighty God. What else? Wonderful Counselor, Emmanuel, God with us. There's nothing like the name of Jesus who had a supernatural conception that was announced in advance to his mother by an angel, who believed the Lord and ran off to tell Joseph her betrothed, who did not believe her, until the angel appeared to him, and then he went, okay, whose name is not Jesus. Shocker. Spoiler alert. It's Joshua. Jesus is the Greek, actually it's the English version of the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. What does it mean? It means savior, deliverer. And how did he do it? He went out on the battlefield for you. And he suffered and died for you. And then he defeated death, which we cannot defeat for you. And he offers forgiveness and eternal life. And I don't know, but I kind of think that since he can defeat death and we can't, maybe his name is more important. So if you're a Christian, then you bear God's name. And your mission in life is not to make your name great. It's a fool's errand. It's a plaque that your grandkids throw out. That's all it ever amounts to in the end. And there's always an end. Your name or your mission is to reveal the greatness of the name of the Lord who has purchased you at the cost and the expense of his own life, who redeems your every failure, who forgives your every sin, who takes you not by force but by love and who is himself the hope of the world. But here's the test. If you never do anything in this life that makes the papers, 
Do you even know what a paper? Some of you are going like, what's a paper? You know, you're Googling paper, you know. Sorry. It makes the news. <laughs> it's recognized and celebrated. Does it matter to you? As long as through you, Jesus is recognized and celebrated. So I'm going to end with a question and a challenge. So question is, who is God making the papers with through you right now? Like, what's the name of the person? And then secondly, the challenge is, I want you to find your one. What does that mean? That means don't go find 10, just find one. It means pray that God would reveal to you, and he's probably doing it right now, who it is that you need to work with in your life that's already in your life. You already love this person. You already know this person. You're already in authentic relationship with this person. Whether or not they ever become a Christian, that doesn't change. So it's not based on that. But they need what you have. They need a better name that is given by grace. Who is your one? Find your one. And not tomorrow, today. Who is your one right now? Who is your one? And will you tomorrow, or even today if you can, begin to talk to them about Jesus? Here's what we are as a church. We are a platform in many ways for you. You're the church to reach your ones. And we come alongside and we say, all right, well, you know what? A great place to talk about the gospel, for example, for people who don't know Jesus and and have none of these categories and have all kinds of questions, all of them good and right, is Alpha. So we'll provide that for you. Or we've got an online service and maybe you just invite them over to your house and you say, hey, man, would you? I know it's a little weird, but love you and this is meaningful to me. And would you come over to the house? We're just going to watch a church service together. You know, we won't sing so that we don't freak you out. Afterwards, we'll have lunch. We'll just talk about it. Are you game? We have this mom's thing or this parent's thing that we do, and you've got kids, and like this has been really helpful to me as a mom and a parent. It's coming from a Christian perspective. No apologies, but I'd love to have you come. You get the idea? Who's the missionary? You are. So who's your one? Find your one. Invite them to Alpha. We just started <laughs> Thursday night. Like, you can go on the app and send them a link. I mean, it's, it really it's about that simple technologically, but don't just send them a link. Give them a call. Like, let them hear your voice, your authentic love for them, and say, listen, I, you know, I've been meaning to have this conversation with you. I love you. And, and this, is, this is the thing that makes all the difference in the world to me. Would you consider it at least? I'll walk with you in it. Here's a tool you can use. Find your one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this woman. We thank you that you did not give her a name in this story. That it has gone without a name for all of these centuries and all of the centuries yet to come. We thank you for her faith and for the way that she trusted in your name and cared less about her own. Lord, make us a people who don't care about our names, who realize their authentic value, but who also are so overwhelmed by the value of your name and all that you are, all that you do, all that you've done, all that you will yet do, all that your name represents. God, please make us about that. Redeem this crazy season of life. By bringing life, 
bringing your life out of all the things that are dying in ours. And God, impress our ones upon our hearts. And Lord, reveal yourself to them too. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.